This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. During this holiday season, we have a special episode with two stories from one of my favorite writers, John Mualem. He is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine and also a writer at large for Pop-Up Magazine. And we're lucky to have had him on the show a few times. The first story is about the origin of the teddy bear and its would-be successor. And we also have this encore presentation of Wild Ones Live, the song and story extravaganza that's probably my favorite thing that we broadcast, and it deserves to be listened to numerous times. Here we go. It's totally unfair. Hydrox cookies came out in 1908. Oreos didn't show up until four years later, but it didn't matter. Hydrox could never shake the image of being a knockoff, and also ran. Hydrox lovers would champion its tangier cream filling, Vegetarians would praise them for being cruelty-free, while America's favorite cookie, the Oreo, contained animal art until the mid-90s. As a consumer product, it's just not up to you. Sometimes you're deemed the mighty transformer, and sometimes you're the loathsome go-bot. One shall stand, and one shall fall. It's capricious who wins. Swiss cake roll versus ho-ho, Twizzler versus red vine. Maybe yours was the first family on the block with the technologically superior Betamax player, only to be overwhelmed by the mediocre VHS tape. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense at all. But sometimes it does. I'm John Mualem. John is a writer for the New York Times Magazine and a writer at large for Pop-Up Magazine, the live magazine in San Francisco, where this story first appeared. Right, so it's 1902, and Theodore Roosevelt is president. And he decides to vacation in a town called Smeads in the Mississippi woods, where he can hunt black bear. He's a big outdoorsman, big hunter. And this hunting trip became kind of a famous story. Uh, Basically, he had spent a few days hunting, and I don't think they even saw a single bear. They definitely didn't get to shoot at any. And then one morning, the dogs get the scent of a bear, and they follow it down into this really weedy place where the president's guide says, you know what, don't even bother going in there and, and troubling yourself. I'll go in, and I'll flush the bear out. You just stay here, and I'll flush it right to you. So Roosevelt waits and waits, but then he gets bored and decides to go off and eat lunch. Eventually, the dogs do corner the bear, and, and the guide, not really knowing what to do, leaps off his horse, cracks the bear over the head with the butt of his rifle, knocks it unconscious or semi-unconscious, and ties it to a tree, and then starts blowing away on his bugle, trying to call Roosevelt back so that the president can be the one who has the honor of shooting it. Roosevelt hears the bugle and makes his way back to the hunting party. And what he finds is this bear. It's a female bear. It weighs about 235 pounds, and it's tied to a tree. It's still semi-conscious, it's injured, it looks a little mangy. It's actually probably about half as heavy and big as it should be, but there's been a real drought going on in the area. The bear looks pathetic, and Roosevelt takes pity on it. He decides that it's it's unsportsmanlike to shoot this thing. You know, he's not going to do it, and he doesn't want anyone else to do it either. So he lowers his gun, and uh, in this sort of merciful moment is, uh, you know, word of this spreads, and a political cartoonist draws a cartoon of of the moment of him you know, showing the bear this mercy. And the way the cartoonist draws the bear is almost like a little Labrador puppy or a golden retriever puppy. It's sort of on its on its butt and its hind legs. And it's got these big, round, perked up ears, almost like Mickey Mouse, and these big, wide eyes. And it's staring at the president, waiting to see what its fate will be. The cartoon was called Drawing the Line in Mississippi. And from that, basically spawned the teddy bear, this adorable little bear in the cartoon was turned into a three-dimensional plush toy. 
The very first teddy bear was either made by a German company called Steve or a Brooklyn toy store owner, depending on who you ask. And they name it after Theodore Roosevelt. They call it Teddy's Bear. It's a huge sensation. And it's actually more popular than baby dolls, which freaks everyone out a little bit. You know, why should their children be playing with bears and, and not dolls? It's a little savage. And within a few years, I think Steve is producing close to a million teddy bears a year and shipping them to the U.S. But it was considered so bizarre that kids would play with a stuffed bear that people just assumed it was a novelty. And as soon as Roosevelt left office, no one would want them anymore. And at this time, the whole idea of mass-produced toys was also really new. So the toy industry wanted to kind of capitalize on its rally and keep it going. So it was really looking for whatever was going to be the next cuddly plaything that American kids were going to want, although it had no idea what that might be. So fast forward to 1909. And Roosevelt's term is about up, and the president-elect is Roosevelt's hand-picked successor, William Howard Taft. And that January, January 1909, Taft is in Atlanta. He's trying to woo the South, uh, try to convince him that his administration is going to you know, take them seriously as a constituency. And he's the guest of honor at this banquet. And the Chamber of Commerce in Atlanta decides it's going to serve him the truest most unpretentious Southern dish around. It's something that a writer of the time, I found this little book about Southern food from the time, calls it the Christmas goose of the Epicurean Negro. The meal was possum and taters. And what it was was an opossum would be roasted on a bed of sweet potatoes and then presented whole on a platter with its head on, its tail on, and often you'd get a smaller little sweet potato crammed between the animal's teeth. 50 teeth. By the way, 50 teeth is apparently the most teeth of any North American mammal. (laughs) Which is fascinating. In the end, the one that they brought to Taft's table weighed 18 pounds. All of a sudden, the orchestra strikes up and the guests burst into song. Suddenly, Taft is presented with this surprise gift, and it's a small, stuffed opossum toy. And this is a brand new invention that some local Taft supporters are trying to position as William Taft's presidency's answer to the teddy bear. They're calling it the Billy Possum. Already, there was a company set up called the Georgia Billy Possum Company. According to one account, within 24 hours of that banquet, there were already deals being brokered for Billy Possums with distributors across the country. In covering the banquet, the LA Times announced that the teddy bear has been relegated to a seat in the rear, and for four years, possibly eight, the children of the United States will play with Billy Possums. So from then on, a bit of possum mania started. There were Billy Possum postcards, Billy Possum pins, Billy Possum pitchers for your cream when you had coffee. Uh, There was a ragtime tune called Possum, the latest craze. And as Taft traveled around the South, some people actually started giving him live opossums in cages when he would make public appearances, sort of handing them over like they were floral bouquets. Soon, Billy Possums were in toy stores from New York to San Francisco. Because real opossums weren't actually that common in cities then, and no one really knew what they were, a toy store in Brooklyn ran an in-store promotion with a live captive opossum that they could show off to kids so the kids could familiarize themselves with what this new animal they were going to be best friends with was. I found an advertisement for the store that read, Do not let it be said that any man, woman, or child in Brooklyn has not seen the cute little animal whose name is mentioned more in all parts of the world today than any other. Previously, there had been poems and newspapers uh, sort of mourning the passing of the dolls and, and how sad it was that these teddy bears were coming into nurseries and vanquishing them. And now there were poems in newspapers about billy possums displacing teddy bears. But since you probably never heard of a billy possum, 
you can guess what comes next. It was a total flop, and the Billy Possum was forgotten and almost entirely out of stores within a couple of months. So in other words, the Billy Possum never even made it to see Christmas time, which uh, is a, a special kind of tragedy for a toy. There are several possible explanations as to why the Billy Possum never took off. The first, and probably what you're thinking right now, is this. Opossums are ugly, and nobody likes them. But it was also the dawn of the mechanical toy, and even some teddy bears that evolved into wind-up animatrons. There was a French-made teddy bear uh, that, quote, winds up and is calculated to indulge in a number of ludicrous somersaults. How could a limp, stuffed Billy Possum compete with that? But John Muellum argues that, at its heart, the acceptance of Teddy Bear and the rejection of Billy Possum comes down to their origin stories. In the story that was told about Roosevelt and this bear, it was a very kind of tender moment where uh, Roosevelt was showing the bear mercy. And when you looked at that cartoon, the way the bear was drawn, it looked like something that you would want to just sweep up into your arms and take care of and that was vulnerable and that needed your help. It looked like a teddy bear as we know it, although no one knew it at the time. The story with Taft, it didn't give it anything else. You know, Taft ate his opossum for supper, and he ate a lot of it, and he ate so much that after his first several helpings, a doctor seated nearby apparently passed him a note suggesting that it might be a good idea if he slowed down a little. Taft even bragged to reporters the next day about how much opossum he consumed. Well, I like opossum, and I ate very heartily of it last night, and it did not disturb in the slightest my digestion or my sleep. The opossum was vulnerable, I guess, splayed out on a bed of taters, but you're not exactly rooting for it. I started feeling really bad for Taft, who, you know, the more I read a little bit about him, he was this totally colorless politician, and he didn't actually even want to be president by some accounts. Uh, He was sort of strong-armed into it uh, by Roosevelt, and he never really measured up to Roosevelt's charisma and charm. I mean, Roosevelt was the kind of guy who, you know, no matter what he did, history seemed eager to glorify him for it. Case in point, the messed up thing about the famous story of Teddy's bear on that hunting trip in Mississippi is it isn't even the whole truth. You have to remember that Roosevelt was a hunter. He was there to hunt bears. He wasn't a PETA activist or something like this. While he did show the bear mercy, it was a very particular kind of mercy. After he refused to shoot it, he said, put it out of its misery. And then one of his hunting buddies came in and slit the bear's neck open with a knife. They carried the bear's body back to camp uh, over the back of a horse, and they basically ate off it for the next several days. And on the last night of their trip, they finished it off. They roasted its paws, and I kid you not, they ate the paws with uh, a side of possum and taters. So that's why you will never cuddle up with a billy possum. Just like you will never watch a Betamax tape or travel to Gobatron with Leader One, and you will never again dunk a Hydrox cookie. Man, I miss Hydrox cookies. They were really tasty. We have one cardinal rule on 99% Invisible. No cardinals. Meaning we don't deal with the natural world, only the built world. So when I read John Mwellum's brilliant book called Wild Ones, A Sometimes Dismaying, Weirdly Reassuring Story About Looking at People Looking at Animals in America, I didn't think I'd ever do an episode of 99% Invisible about it. I just read it for fun. But then I saw John perform stories from the book live with musical accompaniment, and I thought, I need to put this on the radio. I still call this radio. 
Anyway, what you need to know about Wild Ones is that it isn't a book about nature. It's a book about how we fit nature into our modern lives. Wild Ones is about the cutesy stuffed animals, the eco-tours, and the Byzantine methods of conservation that evolve when our experience with wildlife goes from something natural to something designed. Human-animal interaction has become a designed experience. And the story of that transition, as the title of the book suggests, is sometimes dismaying and also weirdly reassuring. John Mewellum is friends with the band Black Prairie, and as he was writing the book, they concocted this idea of the band creating a soundtrack to the book. And the result was an extended EP called Wild Ones, a musical score for the things you might see in your head when you reflect on certain characters and incidents that you read in the book. The writer and the band then went on a short tour with the song and story extravaganza that I'm going to play for you today. When I saw them perform this live in San Francisco, I freaked out it was so good and I accosted them in the dressing room and said, you have to let me share this with my audience. So here it is, and here we go. happens every summer. Small turtles called diamondback terrapins skitter out of the water around JFK Airport in New York. They start moving west. They're heading for a patch of sand where they like to lay their eggs, and they have to cross over one of the airport's runways to get there, runway 4L. Sometimes there's so many turtles on the move at once that the control tower has to delay flights. Now the press loves doing stories about how funny this is, how a fleet of giant airplanes can be held up by just a few tiny turtles. But hold that picture in your mind and think about the Caribbean Sea in 1492. There were almost a billion sea turtles living in it back then. Columbus's men, anchored in the Caribbean, wrote about being kept awake at night by the thwacking of so many turtle shells against the sides of their ship. Notice how that scene is the exact opposite of the scene at JFK. 
It's not a fleet of giant airplanes being held up by a few tiny turtles. It's a giant fleet of turtles bombarding just a few relatively tiny ships. So I wrote this book about people and wild animals in America, and it only really started because I wanted to show my daughter endangered species in the wild before they disappeared. Like a lot of people, I think, I felt this pang. I knew that all around us, beautiful parts of the world are expiring. And I also knew that people in the future, they might not even notice. For them, a world without whales or wilderness might feel normal. I wanted to counteract that forgetting that's bound to take hold over time. This forgetting has a name. Scientists call it shifting baseline syndrome. It means that all of us accept the version of the world we inherit as normal. Over the years, we watch forests get logged or animals disappear, but when the next generation comes along, they accept that depleted version of nature as their normal. It's hard to zoom out really feel the changes that are stacking up across the generations. I can't even imagine what an ocean filled with a billion sea turtles must feel like. Last winter, I was in Hawaii, and I saw three sea turtles, and I flipped the f out. <laughs> I felt like I was in Eden. It wasn't so long ago, though, that America was a kind of Eden, when people could be dwarfed and engulfed by wild animals in a way that feels almost impossible now. In the late 1800s, trains would sometimes have to stop for four or five hours as streams of buffalo moved across the tracks. Occasionally, a stampede would batter into the side of a train, derailing it. A witness described one of these scenes, 1871, in Kansas. Each individual of Buffalo went at it with the desperation and despair of plunging against green locomotive cars, just as blind madness chance directed. After having trains thrown off the track twice in one week, conductors learned to have a very decided respect for the idiosyncrasies of the Buffalo. This man's name was William Temple Hornaday. He was a bombastic Midwesterner with an elaborate mustache. Hornaday was head taxidermist at the Smithsonian and he traveled the globe hunting exotic animals and stuffing them for the museum. In India, after he took down an elephant, he climbed atop the carcass and popped open a bass ale. Once, he trapped an orangutan, named it Little Man, and gave it to Andrew Carnegie as a pet. It sounds weird, but for Hornaday, killing these animals was a kind of conservation. He believed by stuffing them, he was preserving endangered species and for the future generations that might not know them after they were gone. Through taxidermy, he could make them immortal. In 1886, Hornaday looked west and saw that Americans were killing so many buffalo so rapidly that the prairie was almost empty. He figured there were maybe less than 300 buffalo left in the wild, and so he did what he thought was the most helpful and logical thing. He lit out for Montana to kill several dozen of them. 
Holiday shot 25 buffalo in Montana and he built the best looking ones into an exhibit at the museum. He gathered them around a fake watering hole looking forlorn. But from there, his thinking evolved. He realized he was basically just a funeral director embalming the species that America was exterminating. It occurred to him, what if we actually tried to keep these animals alive? And so he became one of America's first real wildlife conservationists, an activist, a lobbyist, a celebrity. America was killing every conceivable kind of animal in their way, and Hornaday stood up for all of them, from icons like the grizzly, to lowlier, less majestic things, like the squirrel. A live squirrel in a tree is poetry in motion. We ask every American to lend a hand to save the silver tail. There was really only one animal on the continent that Hornaday wasn't worried about. It would seem too mighty to be brought down by men with guns, and it lived in a cold and brutal wilderness that men couldn't possibly take over. The polar bear is the king of the frozen north. It's not very probable that the polar bear will ever be exterminated by man. That's Hornaday, writing in 1914. Back then, no one could have imagined a problem as abstract as climate change. But think about how quickly climate change has changed the polar bear's reputation in our minds. It's gone from bloodthirsty man-killer to delicate, drowning victim. 200 years ago, Arctic explorers wrote about polar bears leaping into their boats and trying to eat them, even if they lit the bear on fire. But recently, when I went to the tiny northern town that calls itself the polar bear capital of the world, Martha Stewart had just arrived to film the animals for her daytime show on the Hallmark Channel. The town is called Churchill, Manitoba. It's on the edge of Hudson Bay. And every fall, right before the bay freezes over, Churchill gets overrun with about 900 polar bears and 10,000 polar bear tourists. Bears routinely wander into town. They like hanging out at the elementary school, especially. Folks can call 675-BEAR, and a squad of bear patrol officers will come chase the animals back onto the tundra in their trucks. Bears that won't budge are tranquilized and shipped out to a Quonset hut near the airport. Once this so-called polar bear jail fills up, each animal is drugged again and airlifted, one at a time, to an area north of town. Crowds of tourists come out to watch these bear lifts, and I went to one myself. something just a little ceremonial about the bear lift I went to. How the uniformed wildlife officers arranged the sleeping bear on a net at the center of the crowd. How they tucked its paws carefully across its chest like some drunken uncle after Thanksgiving dinner. It was so careful, beautiful, and confusing. A couple of people cried. It was like the opposite of an animal sacrifice, a ritual to save the bear, to show how far out of our way we'd go not to kill it. I stood there and watched, and as I did, Martha Stewart stood next to me. Her crew was there, filming everything.
honestly, it's a breathtaking thing to watch a polar bear flying away. All of a sudden, the helicopter started to churn, the edges of the net lifted. The furry shape inside contracted into a U, and then the entire package was off the ground. The helicopter climbed toward a cloud bank, the bear twirling slightly underneath it like a tea bag. And then, finally, the polar bear was gone. I know, airlifting polar bears. Strange, no one could have imagined it would come to this. But the way we help animals now has evolved into a surreal kind of performance art. We carry migrating salamanders across busy highways. We monitor pygmy rabbits with drones. At Cornell, scientists breeding endangered peregrine falcons were a specially made receptacle they called the copulation hat, coaxed a bird named beer can to ejaculate on their heads several times a day, every day, for much of the 1970s. See, this is another baseline that shifts over time, the lengths we're willing to go. Each generation does what would have looked like fighting for a preposterous lost cause to the one before it, and then each generation comes along anew and does a little bit more than that. And on it goes, humanity strapping on the proverbial population hat again and again and again. Consider the story of George and Tex. In the late 1970s, there were only a handful of whooping cranes left in the wild and also a small number at a government lab in Maryland. Scientists there were doing their best to wring as many new offspring as they could from those captive birds. But the lab had one problem child, a female crane named Tex. As a newborn, Tex had been raised in a cardboard box in the zookeeper's living room. And having never seen another crane, she imprinted on the one animal she did see, the zookeeper. Basically, she wound up sexually attracted to people and not other cranes. The scientists kept trying to pair Tex off, but Tex wasn't interested. She wanted a man, and specifically a man who looked like her old zookeeper, a dark-haired white man of medium build. Now, there was a young crane conservationist named George Archibald, and George happened to be a dark-haired white man of medium build. He took Tex to rural Wisconsin, put a mattress in her pen, and moved in as Tex's companion. They'd forage together, build a nest, and they'd dance, George doing deep knee bends and springing up with arms out like wings. He'd whoop and holler, come on, Tex, come on. Come on, Tex. And soon, they'd be dancing together just like wild cranes do during courtship. This would get Tex aroused, and at just the right moment, two assistants would rush out from a hiding place and artificially inseminate her with crane semen.
George did all this for three years, living with Tex for months at a time because the eggs she kept laying were infertile. The man and Crane would start out after dawn, they'd go for a walk, and they'd dance. They'd dance, and they'd dance, and they'd dance. George didn't enjoy any of this. He was miserable, actually. Miserable. But in the spring of 1983, Tex finally laid an egg that hatched, and George was right there when it did. He was invited on The Tonight Show to celebrate. One headline read, Man, Crane, Proud Parents of Chick. George named the chick Gee Whiz. By now, Gee Whiz has 44 grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Today, there are more whooping cranes in the wild than there have been in almost a hundred years. William Temple Hornaday, the taxidermist, died in 1937. At his funeral, buglers from the local Boy Scout troop surrounded the coffin and played home on the range. Twenty years later, workers at the Smithsonian were dismantling Hornaday's buffalo exhibit, the one he built after the hunt in Montana, the one he thought would last forever. They found a rusty box buried in the fake ground. Inside was a letter. It was from Hornaday, written to his future successor at the museum. Dear sir, when I am dust and ashes, I beg you to protect these specimens from the deterioration and destruction. At last, the game butchers of the Great West have stopped killing the buffalo. All the buffalo are dead. Gone. 
Hornaday had written that pessimistic letter in 1887 when he was still just a young taxidermist. Turns out he was wrong. The buffalo were not all dead. And in the years to come, he actually played a big role in helping to save them. Lots of other species too. But it was hard for him to focus on those successes. He'd lost so many more battles than he'd won. By the end of his life, he turned bitter, disillusioned. I tried to inject the courage into the hearts of men, but today, I think that speaking generally, civilized man is an unmitigated ass. Like all of us, his imagination was hopelessly trapped in its own moment, its own lifetime. He could only see the world through the tiny keyhole of the present. So where does that leave us then, in our present? Maybe all any one of us can do is push against the baseline as it shifts. We can be a tiny counterweight. We weigh almost nothing, but generation after generation that weight adds up. Sometimes, in some places, the baseline starts to shift in the other direction, in the direction of more beauty, not less. But that happens incrementally too, and it can be hard to notice. So picture that scene at JFK again, all those turtles. When Hornaday was born, they were close to extinction, being hunted because they tasted so good in soup. We're like those turtles, a race of stubborn little things that barely notices as the wilderness it migrates through, fills up with villages and lights, and swells into an airport runway. 
just keep migrating across it anyway, tucking the eggs of the next generation into the sand. But we're like the airplanes, too, because we have changed. We've changed into something that Hornaday couldn't ever have imagined, a species that can at least try to slow down, try to stop. I like to think about those airplanes powering down, the lines of them parting like a shiny metallic sea, so this tiny tribe of turtles can pass through. I get it, it looks funny in the present, but squint into the hazy panorama of history and those airplanes idling in place, that little moment of not moving forward, looks unmistakably to me like progress. Wild Ones Live. Text written by John Muellum, music by Black Prairie. Black Prairie is Jenny Conley Drizos on accordion and vocals. Chris Funk on banjo, dobro, auto harp, and vocals. John Moen on drums and vocals. John Newfeld on guitar and vocals. Nate Query on bass. And Annalisa Tornfeld on fiddle and vocals. Their recording engineer is Rich Hip. Black Prairie has a newish album called Fortune that I know you'll like, and Annalisa from the band has an upcoming solo record called The Number 8 that you can pre-order online, and I'm going to have a link to that on our website, 99pi.org. 99% Invisible is Sam Greenspan, Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. It's been a really spectacular year for us at the show. Thank you so much for your enthusiasm and support. We are a project of 91.7 Local Public Radio KALW in San Francisco, and produced out of the offices of ArcSign in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. We often don't think of winter as a time of growth or creation, but if you think about it, it's the perfect time to create your own website because you're cooped up, you're thinking about being productive, and now Squarespace can help you do it. With Squarespace, you can take your cool ideas, your creative content, your services and goods, and you can turn them into a beautiful website in just a few clicks. This is because their easy-to-use templates are created by world-class designers, and then you have the ability to customize the look and feel and the different settings for your own needs. For example, my site, RomanMars.com, 
Squarespace.com I made with Squarespace. The landing page features a close-up of me talking to a microphone, so it has my, you know, my very handsome beard. But if I should ever shave it, I don't have to wait for my web guy to change the photo. I can do it myself, and maybe the next photo will feature my soulful eyes. On one of the pages, I've also picked out some of my favorite episodes of 99% Invisible to share, and the audio is conveniently embedded, even on mobile. Try it yourself. Go to squarespace.com invisible for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code INVISIBLE to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You can find this show and hang out with other people who like this show on Facebook. All of us at 99PI are on Twitter. Please follow us there. We have a great Tumblr, but you're always welcome at our place at 99pi.org.